Well, we are going to talk about Christmas this morning. And uh, some of you will remember that a couple weeks ago I mentioned the Charlie Brown Christmas special. My favorite, maybe my favorite Christmas movie of all time is the very first Charlie Brown Christmas special made in 1965, A Charlie Brown Christmas. We probably watch this every season at least three or four times with our family. And if you don't remember the plot, let me summarize it again for you briefly. The, the scene begins with Charlie Brown kind of feeling depressed. Everybody else is happy about Christmas. Charlie Brown is not happy. Now, Charlie Brown is rarely happy about anything, but he's feeling particularly sad at Christmas time. And he goes, I should feel happy, but I don't. So for some reason, he decides to ask for help from Lucy. Uh, who, if you know the character of Lucy, is a bit bossy, and she's a bit of a bully. And Lucy decides, hey, Charlie Brown, the reason you're feeling sad is, is you don't have a purpose. You need something to do with your time. So she says, you should direct our Christmas pageant. Now, you kind of have to suspend your disbelief. In the world of Charlie Brown, there are no adults really ever present. So Kids create Christmas pageants, they buy Christmas trees, they're setting up props, they're writing scripts. Nobody calls CPS. I thought maybe this was normal in 1965. Parents were just kind of like, hey, I don't want you in the house, go put together a Christmas pageant. And so they would go down to the school and just do it. So they put together this Christmas pageant and Charlie Brown's supposed to be in charge. But uh, if you know anything about Charlie Brown, nobody listens to him. He is technically the appointed leader, but he's weak and he's insecure and he's fearful. And so nobody wants to pay any attention to him. Uh, So in this leadership vacuum steps Lucy. And people listen to Lucy, but not for the right reasons, right? Lucy is demanding and bossy. She threatens people with violence. She threatens to punch people if they don't do what she says, starting with her younger brother, Linus. Lucy is a dictatorial, violent bullying leader. Charlie Brown is a weak and fearful, insecure leader. Now, as I watch the show, I can't help but think at times that these two leadership styles reflect most of what we see in the world today, don't they? I I think that Charles Schultz, as he's writing it, probably has in mind leaders either from his own life or from the world at large. On the one hand, you've got leaders who are weak. They don't seem to know what they're doing. Maybe they're incompetent. How many times have you found yourself lamenting the perceived incompetence of Congress or our national leaders? And you say, man, if they just had some courage, they could get some things done. Right? On the other hand, you look around the world and you see leaders who are dictatorial and they are overbearing and they get things done, but through the threat of violence. And I think most of us, if we're honest, would say, you know, what I really want is a leader who is strong and competent and understands the complex problems of the world, but who is also compassionate and gracious and kind and cares about the people that they're leading. We don't see a whole lot of that in the world. Uh, The Pew Research Group, they're just a research study group. Since the 1960s, really since about the time of Charlie Brown, they have been asking people this question, to what degree do you trust your government to do the right thing? And it's interesting, if you go back to 1964, 77% of Americans said, I basically trust the government, the president and Congress and our leaders, I basically trust them to do the right thing. 77% of Americans. And then came Vietnam and Watergate 
and a variety of scandals and problems in our country. And today, when they asked the question last year in 2016, only 20% of Americans say that they trust the government. Right? And I think a lot of that is because the more we know about how our leaders operate, often the more cynical we become. Right? And so 50 years ago, we may not have known everything negative that was going on, but it was going on, and now we know, and so we become more cynical. And I think for a lot of us, we look at the world and we say, okay, where is the ruler, where is the leader who's going to do what is right? Not just say what is right, but do what is right. And not do what is right through means of violence or oppression or anger, but through compassion and kindness and justice and righteousness. Where is that leader? And we all want that leader. But I think we also recognize the flip side of the problem, and that is it's really hard to lead well. If you've ever been put in a position of leadership, which most of us have, even if just in your own home, over your children, you know that leading is hard. And you know why leading is hard? Because you have followers. And followers don't do what they're supposed to do. And as you read the scripture, we see these patterns play out over and over and over again in the lives of God's people, that God's people are always looking for a good leader. And leaders are always complaining about bad followers who are like sheep, who don't know what they're doing. And the question the scripture keeps bringing us back to is who's going to save us from all of this mess? Where is the king who will save us from all of the problems that sin has caused in a broken world? All of the death, all of the destruction, all of the hatred people have for one another, all of those results of sin. And what Christmas is, what we're really celebrating at Christmas is that 2,000 years ago, in a tiny little village in Bethlehem, God provided an answer. That a baby in a manger came to be our king. And that baby in a manger was not just any baby, but he was a baby who had been predicted and prophesied and written about for thousands of years. He was the one that all of creation was anticipating and looking toward. Just as we sang a few moments ago in worship, all of creation sing. All of God's world had been looking forward to the coming of Jesus. And what you see in the book of Matthew and in the book of Luke in particular is that when Jesus arrives, it's like the entire universe starts to sing, starting with the angels and moving to the shepherds and the wise men and people come and worship Jesus from all over the ancient world because all of a sudden there's this reality that the king who will lead us out of all of these problems, he's here, right? That's what we celebrate at Christmas, is that that leader has come. But I think most of us, if we are honest, we look around into our world and we look around into our lives and we say, you know what, I have a hard time understanding and focusing on what God is doing, maybe especially in the Christmas season. Say, I know that Jesus came. I know that he's the king. But maybe especially at Christmas, here's what I think is the deep irony of the Christmas season. In a season where we celebrate the sovereignty of God displayed in the incarnation of Jesus Christ, in this season, we probably feel more out of control than at any other time throughout the year. All right? So we say, look, I know that God gave Jesus to rule the world perfectly, 
but I have a hard time even leading myself during the Christmas season. My relationships are strained. Maybe you have family relationships that are strained and you are anticipating with dread the next couple of weeks where you have to enter into these relationships that have tension because you say, you know what? I have not managed my relationships well, nor have those in my family. Right? Or maybe your finances are out of control because of all of the presents you feel you must buy. Right? Or over the next three weeks, you say, you know what, I will eat more in December than I will eat the rest of the year, and I will atone for it for the next 11 months. Or my time is out of control. I just can't get a handle on it. Right? So in a season in which we are called to worship and submit to our King, who came to lead us out of chaos and death and sin, we find ourselves, maybe more than any other time of year, wrapped up in chaos and sin and feeling out of control. Okay, so what I want to do this morning is zoom us out for just a few minutes to 30,000 feet, so to speak, and say we want to look at what God has done in Jesus Christ and the kingdom that God is building and how absolutely in control God is of the course of history. And as we see that and as we reflect on Jesus Christ, then what we want to do is say, if I can trust God with the course of the world, with the course of the ruling of this world, then surely I can trust him with my money, with my body, with my time, with my family. And so I want to fall on my knees in worship of him and then stand up and say in every area of my life, because he is building a perfect kingdom, I'll follow him. So we're going to look at some of these big themes of Scripture this morning. We're going to start in the book of Genesis. Now, I know y'all are thinking we have a potluck in a little while. If you go Genesis to Revelation this morning, we're going to get angry. I promise we're not going to read it all. But I want to give us a a big picture of the kingdom of God because I think sometimes that's what we need in the individual chaos we face in our lives is to pull back and say, look how big God is and how amazing Christmas is. And I want to give us a little bit of that story this morning. So first of all, we're going to start back in Genesis with this concept. Very first concept is this, that the world itself is God's kingdom. If you guys can advance that back there, it's, it's moving on my screen up here but it's not moving up here on the big screen. Let me start with Genesis chapter one. Big concept is this, that the world is God's kingdom. Genesis chapter one, verses 26 to 28. Let me just read it for us. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. All right, so what you see from the very beginning of creation is God makes the entire world to be a representation of who he is, right? So the world is God's kingdom, and the crowning achievement of God's creation is mankind, male and female. All right, and so what God does is he says to Adam and Eve, the first human beings, he says, here's what you're called to do. 
I want you to be my little rulers, my little king and queen, sitting in the earth that God made to rule over the fish of the sea, to rule over the birds of the sky, over the cattle, over the earth, over every creeping thing. And so he creates them in his own image to reflect him, right? So that the world is designed to be the kingdom of God. I don't know if you've ever had a sense that the world is meant to fit together in some way. I don't know if you've ever had one of those moments. Maybe you're in the mountains and you're on vacation and you look around and you are in awe at the beauty of God's creation. Right, or maybe it is in your family, you have one of those moments, one of those rare moments where everything seems to be working out. There is harmony between the children. There's harmony with you and your spouse. The house is miraculously clean. And you sit and you go, man, everything seems to fit together. And if the house is clean and the kids get along and I'm getting along with my spouse, there must be a God who made the world. And I think all too often what happens to us is we lose sight of the kingdom of God because we're going to see in a moment that the world is also broken and and in some sense ruined by sin. But God made it all to fit together. And what we really get at times are just kind of little glimpses of that reality. Most of the time we don't really understand how everything fits together. And then these glimpses come into play. I don't know if you've ever watched a baby, a newborn baby, and, and really watched the way that they utilize their arms and legs. What do they do? They don't use them at all, do they? They just kind of flail. They don't understand how to use arms and legs. That takes a while, right? And so these arms and legs, they are made for a purpose. The hands are made to grasp things or to write, and the legs are made to move, but for those first few weeks, they don't get it. And then all of a sudden, there comes a moment, and some of you have seen this, and I remember this. I have a picture somewhere of our oldest daughter. I couldn't find it this morning, but our oldest daughter, kind of at that stage where she suddenly was discovering her hands, right? And so at first, the hands are kind of going like this, and every so often, they'll kind of pass in front of their face, and they're like, what is that thing, right? And then there's a moment where the hand goes in front, and it stops, And they go, oh, that's mine, right? It's at the end of my arm. It belongs to me. And they begin to reach out and learn to grab things. They have that moment where they understand the way it was meant to function. I think every so often we experience those moments where your heart says, oh, this is what God made me to do. Oh, this is how I can use my career to reflect the values of Jesus Christ. Oh, this is how it fits together. Right, but, but very often instead what we do is we try to construct micro kingdoms and we place all of the weight of our significance in our career, in our family, in our money, in our prestige, and we feel confused. But when we go back to the beginning of the story, at the very beginning of Genesis, what we see is the world is designed to be the kingdom of God, to operate with perfection, with harmony, without injustice, without violence, without immorality. And God said to mankind, you rule the earth as my representatives. Right, But the problem, of course, is that the world is also 
broken. Right, it doesn't function the way that it was supposed to function. So you don't get very far into the story of the Scripture before you see that things are not going to function the way they're supposed to function. So what happens, as you know, is God says to Adam and Eve, look, represent me, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. And he gives them one rule. Don't eat from this one tree. And he tells them that, I think, as an opportunity for them to tangibly demonstrate their submission to God's kingdom. And yet Adam and Eve listen to the lie of the serpent and they say, we don't want God's kingdom. We want our kingdom. And so they disobey. And in Genesis 3, you see Adam and Eve sin like all of us have sinned and put into motion a process where now actually the world itself is broken because of sin. Romans chapter 8, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of of God, For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. The world doesn't work like it's supposed to work. You and I don't work like we are supposed to work. In our hearts, there is, there's rebellion. I was remembering this week that when I was in junior high, my band director, if you got out of control, if you disobeyed, you made too much noise in band, if you were sassy, whatever it was, her punishment was what she called the paragraph. And the paragraph was more like an essay. It was two or three pages long, and you had to copy it verbatim if you disobeyed. You had to copy down the paragraph, and it, it was a humble, contrite apology for violating the authority of the band director. And it went on for pages. And so you would have to copy it and hand it in. And I remember one day my friend Tommy, he got in trouble and he got assigned the paragraph, hundreds of words. And so he took it home and he came back the next day with three or four pages about the length of the paragraph, but it wasn't the paragraph. He had created his own story where he was in charge of everything. And he handed it in, and the band director never noticed. But you know what I thought when Tommy, Tommy showed it to everybody was I thought, man, this took you longer to write than the paragraph would have taken you. You spend some time, you spend hours on this story when you could have just copied the thing and been done. Why did he do that? Well, because the point wasn't the amount of effort. The point was Tommy asserting his rule over his own life. I don't know if you've ever had an argument with one of your kids where you say, go and clean your room. And they argue back. I don't want to clean my room. I just clean my room. It's clean enough. It doesn't need to be any cleaner. And the arguments are marshaled and you go back and forth. And about 20 minutes in, what do you say? You go, son, you could have done it by now if you hadn't been arguing. Right? But the time isn't actually the issue. The issue is submission. Right? And so we say, yeah, those, those kids. Let me ask you a question. How did you feel inside the last time you got pulled over for a ticket? Even if you knew you were guilty, what was your immediate reaction? That's not fair. Look, that guy over there was going faster. I'm a responsible citizen. I don't deserve this. 
Maybe you have known somebody who knew they were guilty and yet went to every length to try to defend themselves from a ticket, right? They took off work. They hired an attorney. They sat in the municipal court for hours and hours, hoping maybe the policeman wouldn't show up. And they knew they were guilty. And they spent more money on their defense than they did on the ticket. Why? Because we have rebellious hearts. That's the brokenness of the world. And so we look around and we say, okay, why do our leaders often abuse their power? Well, why do you? Why do I? Why, when I look around the world, do I see a world right now, especially that seems to be full of sexual immorality and abuse of authority? Well, what's in my own heart and mind? Right? And so, so nothing functions as it should. God designed the world to be his kingdom, but it doesn't function as it's supposed to because of sin. And so we don't get very far into the scripture before we begin to see this problem. But we also don't get very far into scripture before we begin to see this principle that God promises a solution. God promises a king who will ultimately fix the world. Right? This is really from Genesis 3 all the way to the end of the Old Testament. This is where we are headed with Scripture. There's this devastating tragedy in Genesis chapter 3 that mankind rebelled against God and that set into motion a chain of events that really ruins the kingdom plan that it seems like God has, or at least it appears to ruin it. But then the rest of the Old Testament, what we see is God begins to work to say, I want you to trust me. I want you to know me. I want you to submit to me. And so he promises a king who will fix the world. It's interesting, Genesis chapter three, verse 15, in the middle of God's curse of the serpent after the fall of mankind. There's this verse where God says to the serpent, look, There's going to be enmity between your seed, your descendants, and the seed of the woman, right? Remember, the serpent is Satan. And God says, look, there's going to be enmity between those who will follow the serpent and those who will follow the way that I've set up. He says, you'll bruise him on the heel, but you know what? He'll crush you on the head. And most interpreters still see this as an initial promise that despite sin, God was going to raise up a seed who would crush that serpent on the head. And you see that in the book of Revelation, that that serpent is tossed into the lake of fire by Jesus Christ. As you walk through the Old Testament, then what you see is God begins to build his kingdom. He raises up Abraham and Abraham's descendants, the Israelites, And he leads them out of Egypt and he brings them toward the promised land. And he says to them, look, I want you to be a kingdom of priests to me. I want you to reflect me. And through your reflecting of me, we are going to build a kingdom of priests. And then from you, the message of God will go out to all of the nations. In Genesis chapter 12, it says, Abraham, in your descendants, all the nations will be blessed. 
And so, so you begin to get this idea that God is building this kingdom plan. But you know what's interesting is then God gives them the law and the law is essentially, it's given through Moses, right? And it is, here's who God is. Here's how you can know God. God says, I've told you everything you need to know. And you know, they don't get very far before they break the very first commandment. What is the very first commandment? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. You shall not have any other gods before me. Now, if you remember the story from the book of Exodus, it's really remarkable. Exodus chapter 20 to 24, Moses lays out the 10 commandments, remember? And you get to chapter 24 and he lays out, after he's laid out the 10 commandments and a few principles of the law, he looks at the people and he says, will you obey? And the people say, absolutely, we will obey. And Moses says, okay, let me go up on the mountain and I'm, I'm gonna, God's going to give me some tablets. He's going to write it all down. So he goes up on the mountain. The people see the glory of God. They've already said we will obey and they're standing near Mount Sinai looking at the glory of God and they go, nah, maybe Moses didn't come down. Aaron, make us a calf that we can worship. In chapter 32, they build their own God. They break the first commandment within a month and a half. And that's the pattern we see in Scripture. We disobey. We violate God's laws. And so what God begins to promise is he's going to send a king. If you look at the book of 2 Samuel, promising to David... I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. David, there is a king coming who will reign forever in righteousness and justice. And so as you walk through the Psalms, as you walk through the prophets, you see the nation of Israel beginning to anticipate this king. One of the great Christmas passages that we always read Isaiah chapter 9, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. David, a king is coming. A king is coming. Isaiah, a king is coming. He's going to be called Wonderful Counselor, Eternal Father, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, and he will establish the kingdom of God now and forever and ever and ever. There's not going to be any end to the increase of his government. His government will just keep growing in peace and in authority forever and ever and ever. Does that sound good? Does that sound like a return to what God intended? Absolutely. So that Zechariah, toward the end of the Old Testament, would say, the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one and his name, the only one. All right, so what you have then in the remainder of the Old Testament, imagine like a casting call. My younger brother for a while was trying to get into acting when he was in his teens and early 20s. And he would go to these casting calls for like, you know, a Pop-Tarts commercial. And there would be thousands of kids trying out. And the casting director would call one in and go, nope, you are not good enough to represent Pop-Tarts. Go along, right? Send you out of the room. Next one, nope, 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 nope. Go through hundreds and hundreds of interviews and auditions to pick the one. That's what we see in the Old Testament. King after king after king after king. And every single one, here's the question. Is this the one? 
Is this the king? Is this the king who will establish God's kingdom and reign forever and ever? Is this the king? Is this the king? And as you look at the kings of Israel and of Judah, nobody fits the criteria. Most of the kings violated the very first commandment and the second commandment over and over and over again. They led the people into the worship of the Canaanites, which was a worship full of violence and sexual immorality and war. But even the ones who weren't idolatrous were sinful. Every single one of them disqualifies himself from being that king so that by the time you get to the book of Malachi, the people have been booted off the land for their disobedience and then they have been graciously brought back and they're waiting. Where's the king? Where's the king? Where's the king? 400 years in between the Old and the New Testament and they have a promise. The king is coming. The king is coming. The king is coming. This promise that God's king will fix the world so that by the time you get to the New Testament, there's this amazing anticipation. And watch the very first verse of the first book of the New Testament. What Matthew tells us. Matthew 1.1. The record of the genealogy of Jesus. Now, if you don't know the name Jesus, it comes from the Hebrew Joshua. It means God saves. The genealogy of Jesus. Who? The Messiah. What does the Messiah mean? It means he's the anointed king. He is the Christ the son of David, right? He's the one God promised to David, the son of Abraham. He came through Abraham. Think how much is packed in one verse. Right at the beginning of the New Testament, Matthew says, look, the one that you've been waiting for for hundreds of years, for thousands of years, this is him. This is the guy. The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This is the one. In Luke chapter one, When the angel announced to Mary the coming of her son, Jesus, the angel said, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And what will happen? The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and of his kingdom, there will be no end. Right? It's no wonder now that Mary bursts into song because this angel says, Mary, guess what? In your house, Right now, in this time, in this place, that king has come and he's in your womb. And so the angels sing his praises. The shepherds come and worship him. The wise men from the east make their way to worship him. All right, and what's astounding about it, here's really what's astounding, is almost nobody in the grand scheme of things, almost nobody really even knows that any of this has happened. Right? The king of the world is born in this little bitty town in Bethlehem in a manger. And very few people even notice. And the people who do notice, by and large, try to kill him. So you have Herod who feels his authority is threatened. And as Jesus grows, there's this conflict between the kingdom of God and the sin of the world. One of my seminary professors, Glenn Kreider, wrote this book, God With Us, a few years ago. Here's what he said. He said, the king of the Jews is born in fulfillment of biblical prophecy, and the event is almost completely overlooked. 
The leaders of Israel, the experts in the Old Testament scriptures miss this significant event that begins to fulfill all the expectations of the prophets. When the creator humbles himself to become a human, when the invisible God takes on flesh and blood, he does so without a great deal of fanfare or attention. When the creator becomes a creature, his deity is so well hidden, so disguised that the creatures do not recognize him. In a manger, in a small town, the creator of the universe condescends to become a creature and come into his world and most of creation misses it. I guess my question for us is, are we missing it? All right, as we walk through Christmas, day after day, are we so caught up in trying to manage our own kingdoms that we're missing what this is about? Right? I think often we say things like, Jesus is the reason for the season, And we put it on a bumper sticker on our car. But maybe that slogan doesn't really make its way into our hearts and our minds. Doesn't make its way into our bank accounts or our calendars. Or our attitudes toward our family. To say, look, if this is really true, if the king of the universe condescended to become a creature, everything changes. Not only the way I think about the world, because now I know I can have peace in my heart through Jesus, but the way I order my life. Because if you believe in Jesus Christ this morning, the Spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And every day, the question is, which kingdom will I build? Which kingdom values will I submit to? Do we miss it all too often in the chaos of Christmas that the king has come? And I think it helps for us to see we're just one part of a a giant story that God is writing. Do you think people felt insecure and ill at ease in the Roman world in the first century when the Jewish people were oppressed and when Caesar was a violent and wicked ruler? Do you believe that Joseph and Mary, as they traveled to Bethlehem to register for that census, and Mary was nine months pregnant, and they are walking to Bethlehem, and they're hungry, and they're tired, do you think that their spirits could have felt a sense of turmoil? And those shepherds watching the sheep, wondering how they're going to make it through another season. And they see the angel, And they see the baby, and they knew. This changes everything. And so those shepherds, they change their plans. They say, look, we we, we have to go to see this thing. We've got to leave the sheep here and go to Bethlehem and see this thing. And then they go to Bethlehem, and then they go tell everybody, this is the king God promised. Everything will be set right again that was made wrong in the garden. So the question is, will you and I pause this season and fall on our knees before that king? All right, as as we close, just a couple of application points. One is this, pause and worship the king. 
In just a moment, we're going to close in song. We're going to take a moment to worship the King. But as you move throughout the season with your family, with your kids, with your roommates, whoever it is that you gather with, don't miss what God has done. Find space, find rhythms in your family for worship. For our family, the last couple of years, that's meant that at breakfast time, we often read an Advent devotional before we all rush out the door. I don't know what it is for your family, but take time to pause, even if it's five or 10 minutes and say, we're gonna remind ourselves day in and day out. It is not about the chaos. It is not about the stress. It is not about our money or the cookies. We're gonna pause and worship the king. And then second, will we submit to his kingdom authority? If you don't know Jesus Christ and you're here this morning, The good news is that God wants to know you and he gave his own son, Jesus. And Jesus was born in that manger in Bethlehem and he lived an absolutely perfect life in keeping with God's perfect character. And then he died. He died to pay the penalty for your sin and mine, for all of the rebellion in our hearts. And then he rose again. And all who trust in him can know they're a part of his kingdom and can be a part of his kingdom forever and ever. If you don't believe that, the most important thing you could do before you walk out and grab some fried chicken in a couple of minutes is in your heart and mind, you say, I need to know Jesus Christ and I trust in him. And if you do know Jesus, We want to pause and worship him and say, God, in every area of my life this season, I don't want to miss what God is doing because of the chaos in my heart. So I'll give my time and my body and my money and my family and everything I have to you and say, God, show me how I can reflect your kingdom values and be a part of this story you've been writing. Let me pray for us and then we're going to close in song. Father, thank you so much for your word this morning. We thank you most of all for Jesus, our Savior, your Son. Thank you that he entered into the chaos and the mess of our world and the chaos and mess of our hearts. We want to be led well and we look for good leaders, but if we're honest, we know that we are not good leaders or followers. We don't lead ourselves or others well. And when we have authority, We rebel against it. We've rebelled against your authority. And so we praise you that you have redeemed us in Jesus. I pray now let us pause in this season and trust you and worship you and give our lives to you in every respect. And we pray this in Jesus' name.